All right, well, if you've got a Bible, let's open it up to the book of Ephesians. While you're finding your spot, let's just pray again ask the Lord to open up our hearts. God, as we give honor to your word and give honor to your name, we pray that you would speak to us, that you would teach us what you want to say, that you would give us all uh, ears to hear, that your spirit would speak, and that we would draw closer to you tonight. And we just all these things in your name. Amen. So tonight, we get to wrap up the book of Ephesians, uh, really just one of the most iconic, definitive books of what is the Christian life supposed to look like. And, you know, we've said it before, but like most things that bears repeating, uh, Galatians, if you think of it, if you're thinking of the different books of the Bible, Galatians is all about the responsibility to walk in grace, the responsibility to make sure as a Christian that you're not falling into legalism, not falling into these false ideas about, well, maybe I can earn the love of God. And Ephesians is all about the thrill of walking in grace, the joy and the freedom and the liberty that comes with that. And so they're very much corollary books. They very much go hand in hand. Um, But Ephesians, you know, we've said the book divides really into two parts. You've got the first three chapters and the last three chapters. The first three chapters are all about what God has done. Okay, we talked about chapter one, God chose us, and God saved us, God is empowering us. Chapter two, God made us alive when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Paul, has, uh, Paul says that God has revealed himself to us in chapter three. And in chapter four, he transitions, and he says, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, right? Because of what these first three chapters have, have explained, because of who we know God to be, because of who he has revealed himself to be, Paul says, all right, now let's walk appropriately because of what we know, because of what God has done as a response. And it's very important that that order stays in our mind. We are never trying to apply Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 in order to earn Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. They're written 1 through 6 for a reason. We are, our goal and our responsibility and our thrill is to understand chapters 1, 2, and 3 so that we can respond by living out chapters 4, 5, and 6. And so last week, chapter 4, he kind of started us off in that, and then tonight, chapters 5 and 6, we're going to finish it out. But he said, walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. And so tonight, chapter 5, we're really going to kind of jump into that. Paul's going to give us three things to walk in. All right, so he says, chapter 5, verse 1, and therefore, and again, therefore, because of what God has done, Be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ himself has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. So first thing we're going to talk about is walking in love as Christ, like Christ. But fornication, verse 3, in all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them. So the first thing tonight that Paul wants us to do is to walk in love. And he specifies that. Walk in love as Christ also has loved us. You know, our, our world right now is obsessed with, uh, it's actually really interesting to be teaching this in what we now 
referred to as Pride Month. Right? Our world is obsessed with the idea of love. And there's a slogan that we throw around that people say, love is love. And it's really, uh, even if you dig down, really any person can acknowledge that's not actually a true statement. Because we understand that we use the word love to mean a vast array of different things. Right? If you tell me you love your wife and you tell me you love pizza, I hope you mean two different things. You'd better mean two different things or else one of the two of them is in serious jeopardy in the relationship. Um, or you're in serious jeopardy anyways. Um, but walk in love as Christ. We're to walk in the love of Christ and manifest the love of Christ in the world around us. And he then specifies and he elaborates on what that is. Fornication, uncleanness, and covetousness should not even be named among us as comparable to the love of Christ. So when we walk in the love of Christ, it's really interesting because the love of Christ is not a blanket affirmation of other people's behaviors. It's not saying, hey, I love you, therefore I won't, I won't, I won't say anything. It's actually, hey, I love you, therefore this behavior is not acceptable. Therefore, I cannot stand back and condone this. And the words uh, fornication would be like basically any uh, sexual act outside of the marriage of one man and one woman. Uncleanness would be any uh, perverse thought. And covetousness is really any desire. So anything, any idea of love that is all about what do I get out of it is not the love that we're talking about, right? And this is oftentimes where the breakdown comes. When we talk about love, we are in a worldly context, it's self-referencing. When we say, I love this, what does it usually mean? It means I love how this makes me feel, or I love what this gives me, or I love what this does for me. And that's not the love of Christ. The love of Christ is I love these people, therefore I will die. Therefore I will lay aside my glory. Therefore I will come to earth and dwell among them and share in their sorrows and their burdens and I will sacrifice myself. Worldly love is all about what do I get. Christ-like love is all about what can I give? What can I give out because of what Christ has done? And so it's important that we understand this, especially if we want to be honest Christians in the world that we're in. Right? We want to love people. We want to have grace for people who are struggling with sin, but we also have to understand that there are certain things that must be put away if we're going to walk in love as Christ. So fornication, uncleanness, and covetousness, those things are not to be considered part of love. And he goes on and says, neither filthiness or foolish talking or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. There are certain jokes that Christians are not supposed to laugh at. Certain ideas, right? That we should... That it's important to understand if I'm going to walk in the love of Christ, I need to not consider that to be amusing. Okay? And he goes on and says, This you know that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of God. If you are one of those things, if you're a fornicator, an unclean person, or a covetous person, you're an idolater. Because what you're saying is, I need this, and I am elevating my desire above the love of God, above the will of God, and above the word of God. And so you have now created an idol. You have now fashioned man according to your own image. And you've said, this is your God. And so you're an idolater. If those things are what's defining your life, you are an idolater. And you need to understand that that is a serious offense in the eyes of God. If that defines your life, you will not inherit the kingdom of Christ. Now, that is not to say you know, you always have to be careful when you read a passage like this because you never want to take the teeth out of it. You also never want to bite the wrong person. If you 
are letting these things define your life and you have no uh, desire to repent and no willingness to change, then you are on incredibly dangerous ground. But if you are trying to walk in the love of Christ and you're trying to grow and you are stumbling in these things, then you need to understand the first three chapters of Ephesians. All that God has done for you already. You're not trying to clean up your act so that you can earn the love of God, but because the love of God has come and been made manifest to us through Jesus Christ, because of that, we should be desiring to put these things away. And we should be desiring to help each other put these things away. And he says, because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. These are things that will bring the judgment of God upon the world. And so we look at our world right now, we got to love the people in our world, absolutely. People in our world should, should know and resonate with us because they can identify that we see them as human beings, we see them as valuable in the eyes of God, but they also need to never confuse our ability to see their inherent value as a human with a blanket affirmation of everything that they're doing. We see them as human beings, we do not approve of everything they do, and that's really important. He goes on in verse 8, he says, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the world, walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore he says, awake, you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. So the second thing we do is walk in light. If you're a Christian, part of what should define your life is that you know where you're going, right? You understand, you can see things. That doesn't mean you know the future perfectly, but it means you have an awareness of what's coming and an awareness that gives you a confidence and an assurance that the world does not have. The world is desperately trying to figure out what's going to happen next, right? Are we going to melt the polar ice caps? Are we going to kill the penguins? Are we going to melt the whole thing down with a nuclear war? Is Russia going to, you know, blow up Europe? Or is China going to invade Taiwan? We have all these things that we just have to figure out. And what are we going to do? And how are we going to, you know, disseminate all these global tensions? And you know what we say as Christians? God's still in control. And I've actually read how the, the final thing ends up. So if you're curious, I know that there's going to be a one world dictator who's going to come out of the Mediterranean region. Book of Revelation. Right? And there's going to be a rapture of the church prior to the Great Tribulation. I know that the Israeli people are going to uh, find peace through this false, false Messiah. And then, you know, we have this understanding. We know what's coming. And that gives us peace. We walk in light, and our lives should reflect that. And it's interesting, you know, Jesus said, he said, I am the light of the world. But he also said, you are the light of the world. And so if we're walking in light, there's kind of that understanding, you know, like the sun gives off light, and the moon reflects light, but they both brighten the world. They both help people on earth see where to go, right? Jesus Christ is the light of the world, but we, as Christians, are reflecting the light to the world. And so we walk in that light so that we can see where we're going and so that the world can see. There's a path here, right? And it's narrow, it's small, and not many find it, but there's a path, and you can walk on the light of the path. So we're called to walk in love and walk in light. Verse 15, he goes on, he says, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. The word circumspectly means like looking all around, having your eyes open, your heads up, walking in wisdom, redeeming the time, verse 16, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. 
speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. So walk in love, walk in light, walk in wisdom. It's interesting. He gives us two contrasts back to back. He says, all right, don't be unwise, but understand the will of the Lord. Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Those aren't accidental contrasts. He's making a couple points there. Okay, one is don't be unwise. The other is where are you finding your fulfillment? And he warns us not to be drunk with wine. Now, we've got to pause. So it's a very clear command in Scripture, don't be drunk. It's not a command that says you can never drink alcohol. But with that, sometimes it's helpful to back up and ask ourselves why we do something. Right? What's the, what's the purpose of consuming alcohol? It's to change the way you feel. Right? Either to loosen you up or to help you forget something or to help you just feel better about yourself. But really, what is alcohol doing? It's depressing your function. Right? It, it's removing layers of inhibition. It's removing filters. Right? And sometimes people have a fun time when they're drunk only because basically they've destroyed their ability to recognize that they're acting like an idiot. And then so once you have lost all awareness that you're acting like an idiot, you can think you're having a lot of fun, but really you're just making yourself look like an idiot. And he contrasts that and says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And so, he's in, and so understand that being filled with the Spirit is a couple things. One, he doesn't say be drunk with the Spirit, be filled with the Spirit. The Spirit isn't going to depress your function. If you're filled with the Spirit of God, your awareness, your ability to function, your ability to comprehend is going to expand. You're going to be sharper than you are on your own. You're going to be smarter than you are on your own. You're going to be wiser than you are on your own. You're going to have understanding in situations that you don't have on your own. And he's making a contrast, right? And I just, you know, and sometimes I think it's helpful to remind ourselves that any situation in which you could think, I need a glass or a bottle to calm myself down or loosen myself up, or whatever it is, is a situation in which you could say, I need the Holy Spirit to fill me up. I don't need to depress something. I need to fill something up, right? And, it's a, and frankly, alcohol, I think it's, just, it's, a, it's a really sad substitute for what's, what's available for us. You know, I was, I've been thinking about it all week long. We had the baptism on Sunday, right? And Aaron sharing his testimony, and we're singing Happy Day, and we're dunking him in the trough. I don't think having a beer would have made me enjoy that one moment one bit more, right? Popping a tab right before... And, and tossing it back, I, I don't think that would have enhanced my ability to enjoy that moment at all. Why? Because it was a beautiful moment of watching a testimony of what God is doing in the life of somebody, right? Having a beer wouldn't have improved that. And I could say, well, yeah, but that was, a whole, kind of, that was kind of a holy moment, kind of a church moment, yeah. But if the Holy Spirit is never going to leave us or forsake us, every moment is holy. So in a sense, there's, there's no moment that isn't that sacred, that isn't that special. And so, you know, sometimes it's just helpful to step back and say, okay, so what do, we, what do we want, right? I want to walk in wisdom. I want to have my head up. I want to have my eyes open. I have few enough brain cells as it is. I don't want to de deplete their ability, right? I want the Holy Spirit to come and work and, and be able to move through my life in a way that I currently am not capable of. And he says, with that, when you're filled with the Spirit, you should be speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Look what you should be doing. You should be speaking to one another, singing, making melody, giving thanks 
and submitting to one another in the fear of God. When you're filled with the Holy Spirit, again, it's going to be this outflow. It's a response. It's not what can I get. It's not how does the Spirit make me feel. It's the Spirit is now flowing in me, so I am empowered to bless other people, to know, this, to know Christ more, right? I'm empowered to grow outward, not to pull inward. And then verse 21, he says, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Now he's going to make a little bit of a transition, and he's going to talk about submission. And he's going to go through several roles in the church. And each one of them, he's going to be making a point about submission, all right? And so he says, wives, verse 22, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So, I'm going to leave the majority of this to men wiser than myself. But, nevertheless, we'll make a couple points here, okay? So he's talking about submission. And really, he's addressing wives and husbands. Because they both need to submit to the role that God has placed them in. All right? A husband has been placed in a position of authority. And he needs to submit to that idea. Some men don't want to lead. And some men don't want to lead well. But you know what? A man is created to lead. If a man fails to lead, all he's doing is leading toward failure. All right? But a man's going to lead. That's just the way it works in a relationship. And you may think that the woman's driving the ship, but if the woman's driving the ship, what does it mean? It means that the man is leading the ship towards destruction. The woman is called to submit to the man's leadership. And, and Paul makes this point about the role of a husband and wife, and specifically where he goes with it is he says, you need to understand that this is the picture of Christ in the church. Marriage is a gospel presentation lived out in your life to the world around you, okay? And so with that, understand a couple of things. One, just like he said, walk in love as Christ, marriage is never about making you happy. It is about making you holy. It's about drawing you into a position where you more accurately represent the gospel, and the way that a wife treats her husband, the respect that she's called to show to him, is supposed to be a demonstration of how we as the church collectively respect Jesus Christ. And say, Christ, where are you going? Because I want to be a part of that. Because I want to follow where you're leading because you're the king. Because you're leading forward in the same way that a woman should, is, by the design of God, supposed to say to her husband, all right, where, is this, where are you taking the family? Because I want to be able to get behind you. I want to be able to help you and be your, you know, your point man, ride shotgun, whatever else it is. Uh, and so that's the role for the woman. But the man is called to 
to lead and to love his own wife as Christ loved the church. The woman's the picture to the world of how the church responds to Christ. The man is the picture to the world of how Christ loves the church. No pressure, right? The way you treat your wife is a demonstration of how Jesus loves the church. And so you had better make sure that you know how Christ loves the church, and you'd better be aware of the fact that he considers you to be spreading the gospel by how you treat your wife. And so just a couple, you know, so if you're a man, you're called to wash your wife with the word of God. I think that's just a beautiful picture. So that you can, you know, in the same way that Christ is doing the same thing to us. He's washing us. He's cleansing us. He's getting us ready to present us, to be presented to him on the day that we are all with him in glory. But also, at the end, he says, let each one of you in particular love his wife, love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Men are called to love their wives, which is not natural to them. Women are called to respect their husbands, which is not natural to them. Women are wired for love, and men are wired for respect. And as a result, they sometimes struggle to communicate to each other in the way that the other person is designed to receive. Right? If you tell your wife, you're one heck of a human being. That's a great thing to tell another guy. I don't know if I'd advise it you tell your wife that, right? Ladies, your husband probably doesn't care if you send him a heart emoji. He'd much rather you send him that bicep emoji because you think that he's the man, right? Men want respect. I mean, they're happy that you love them, but really, they want to know that you respect the heck out of them. And so, on the corollary, men need to make sure they are living lives that are worth that respect, right? And he goes on, and again, we're, we're, he's continuing this idea of submitting to the roles that God has placed us in. He says, children, verse six, chapter 6, verse 1, Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. And you fathers do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. So he says, all right, kids, obey your parents. Submit to that role. We're talking about submission, again, as a response to what God has done to the first three chapters of this book. Submit to your parents. Obey your parents. Now, that's specifically given to children. Honor your father and mother is a new sentence. So there's a point in time at which you need to obey your parents because it's the right thing to do. There is a point in time at which you're no longer a child. At that point, you may not need to obey your parents, but you still need to honor your father and mother. The call to honor does not go away. And he says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. And specifically, he's addressing dads. And sorry, do not provoke your children. Do not frustrate your children. And I think one of the ways, you know, what is, how do you frustrate your child? Well, you can frustrate them by never, you know, being somebody who they can never please. But you can also frustrate them by not being an honorable person. If a child is called to honor you, that's a command from Scripture. It doesn't say whether they deserve it. But if a child is called to honor a parent who is not walking in an honorable fashion, it, is, it can be frustrating, right? So don't frustrate your children. Don't provoke them to wrath by your conduct, but rather bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Again, this is kind of the same idea as marriage, where the man is in a position of leadership to say, hey, I am pursuing Christ. This is where we go as a family. We are in pursuit of Christ. And I would like you all to follow with me. Right? That's the man's role in the family. Verse 5. He says, Bond servants, 
Be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart, as to Christ. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will, doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. And you, masters, do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Okay, slavery is a, is a, it's a challenging thing for us in the 21st century to reconcile with the time of the Bible. And part of the reason for that, and this is really important historically, American slavery is a little bit unique in the history of the world in that it was so exclusively based on the ethnicity of the person being enslaved. All right? American history is very specific in that. Okay? But culturally, across world history, slavery hasn't really been about race as much as it's been about your ethnic status and your global power status. All right? Poor people became slaves. That, that's, just, that's how the global economy was set up. All right? And so with that, there's a different construct here. In Rome, the, vast, the majority of people in the Roman Empire this time were slaves. And so people are getting saved. They're going to be slaves. And understand, too, the, the concept of slavery was much broader in the ancient world, where certainly there are people who are being uh, horribly mistreated and forced to work without pay, without any real quality of life, absolutely. But there are also people who are being treated by what today would very easily be considered employment standards. People who have a debt, they're working to pay off, right? And frankly, that, once you get to that level, that's where a lot of us are today. You have a mortgage, and you go to work to pay it off. Because you know that if you don't go to work and pay off the mortgage, you don't get the house. You're, you're in for the amount of the house, right? Once you pay that off and pay off everything else and get to where you don't need to go to work to pay for anything else, what can you do? We call it retiring, okay? But the idea is still, and the idea is the same, where you're going to work for someone to pay a debt. So he says, bond servants, if you're in that position, so if you're, as we're applying it to our world today, if you're in an employee position, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. Basically, be obedient to your earthly masters. With fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart, as to Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, doing service as to the Lord and not to men. All right, if you're in a position of working for somebody, understand that you're not working for them. You're working for the Lord. Your work in an earthly context is supposed to be a response to what God has done for you. And you may not feel like that's what your job is. You may not feel like your job or your manager or your boss or your company deserves that. But Paul's writing this in a context to slaves. And he says, hey, you know what? When you're doing your work, you're, gonna, you're called to do it like you're doing it for Christ. Because really, you are. Christ is the, is the final judge. He's the final one who gets to say who gets to make the call on whether or not you served him well. And, and there's a, there are rewards in heaven based on our service. There's, there's, a, you know, there's the point of salvation for every person who believes in Christ. But past that point, once we are in heaven, there are going to be rewards administered by God based on what we did on earth. It's kind of a weird concept, but God says it's there, so we believe it. So he calls us to work well. Right? We're not called to work as men pleasers. Your job is not to impress your boss. 
just when he shows up, just when he's in the room, right? And then as soon as he's out the door, you're like, ah, the lazy bum. I remember one time I was at a store in town picking up something, and there's a guy at the counter, and his manager walks by, and he's like, hey, did you get take this and this and this and this and this taken care of? And the guy's like, yeah, 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 yeah. The manager walks out, and the guy looks at me, and he goes, I've never wanted to kill a human being until I worked for him. You know, just... <laughs> And I must have looked a little, like, taken aback, because he's like, well, not literally. <laughs> um, but boy, when the boss walked in, he was on it. He was, you know, sir, yes, sir. He was on the job. Once the boss walked out, he wasn't too happy to be working for that boss. And God says, that's not what you're called to do, because you're serving Christ. Christ is watching, is, is aware of your life every minute of every day. And you're called to be fellowshipping with him. So you're not working for a paycheck. You're not working to get promoted. You're working as a response. Wow, Jesus saved me. God chose me. The Holy Spirit's empowering me. I get to work like this as a response, as a way to say thank you. The, the effort that I put into my work right here is my means of saying thank you. That should change our attitudes. Christians should be known for being the best workers in the world. We're not always. But that's what we should be known as, because we should be doing our work as unto the Lord. And then he, on the flip side, warns masters, you could say he's warning employers, hey, do the same thing. Give up threatening them, knowing that your master also is in heaven and there's no partiality with him. You need to be, if you're in a leadership position in your work, you need to be administering fairly. You need to be overseeing appropriately. And your job is not just to grind the absolute maximum capacity out of people with the absolute lowest amount of pay. Your job is to treat them as Jesus Christ would have you treat them, right? To see them as human beings deserving the grace, deserving your uh, appreciation because they're made in the image of God. So it should drive both ways. Whatever position you're in, in life or in work, the fact that you're responding to what Christ has done in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 should impact how you behave. So he goes on then, sort of the last chunk of Ephesians. He says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. So he tells us twice, put on the whole armor of God. He didn't give us a list of, of the armor of the Lord. What are the things that we should be putting on? If we're aware of the call, if we're going to walk worthy of the call with which we've been called, what should we put on? How should we act? Here's what we should do. All right? But notice two things before we get into it. We'll get there. One pack them in just a minute. But put on the whole armor of God, and what do we do with it? We stand. Stand, therefore. Verse 14. Having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So he says, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're gonna, we're gonna, he's working with a metaphor. He's talking about putting on the armor of God. If we're going to a spiritual battle, we need to put on spiritual armor. So what's the first thing we put on? The belt of truth. Gird your waist with truth. 
You know, if you don't have truth holding up your pants, you're not going to get very far, right? Truth is what's going to free you up to move. If you don't have truth, you're stuck. You're going to be always embarrassed. You're just going to be horribly inefficient and ineffective. And you're just not going to, this, this show isn't going to go anywhere. Truth is going to hold everything together. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness. This is important. We're putting on righteousness. Now, whose righteousness is important? Are we putting on our righteousness? No, we better not be. Because your righteousness and my righteousness, uh, the Bible calls them filthy rags. Have you ever tried to shoot through a filthy rag? It, it doesn't do much in the way of resistance. You ever notice that? You know, it just kind of goes right through it. And if you're attempting to defend yourself with your righteousness, same thing's going to happen. But if you put on the breastplate of Christ's righteousness, that's a different thing. The righteousness of Christ that can take away your sins, that can raise you to life, that can give you the Holy Spirit dwelling in your heart right now as a sign that he is coming again. Now that's righteousness. Right? That's a bulletproof vest right there. You put that thing on, and all of a sudden your vitals are protected. Nobody's going to stab you through the heart. You're not going to get wiped out with, with a, you know, with a, whatever, pick your piece of artillery. No, you're protected. The big stuff is taken care of. You put on the righteousness of Christ. You make sure that you are saved and that you're covered in his righteousness. And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, the gospel, the good news of peace. What are we walking in? We're walking in the good news of peace. But how do we have peace? Through grace, right? Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul says it over and over and over again. Grace and peace. So we're equipped with the good news of peace, that you can have peace. But we know that it's through grace. If you have that on your feet, those treads don't wear out. You can take that anywhere. Because everywhere in the world, people want something. They want peace. They want to lay aside all the anxiety and all the turmoil and all the frustration and all the chatter and all the noise and all the heartache. And they want to know there's peace. And if you are walking in peace, if peace is what's on your feet, and somebody says, hey, what kind of shoes have you got? You say, well, I got these by getting grace. I received peace through the grace of Jesus Christ. And above all, verse 16, taking the shield of faith with which you'll be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Now, faith is interesting because oftentimes we think of faith as confidence, right? If somebody has great faith, what does it mean? It means they have great boldness and they have confidence and they can just kind of go wherever and say, well, the Lord's going to take care of me. Well, that's not always false, but that's really not the definition of faith biblically. Faith in the scripture does not equate with confidence. It equates with obedience. When you get to Hebrews 11 and you read the list of people who were marked by their faith, and then you go back to the Old Testament and read those stories, <clears throat> those people were not known for being uh, horrifically brave. But what they did do is they obeyed. And so Scripture defines them as being men and women of faith. Faith is the willingness to say, I trust the Lord enough to obey him. Jesus said, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can tell a mountain to move and be cast into the sea, and it will be. So faith, if you're going to go into battle, the enemy will throw darts against you. Fiery darts, fiery arrows. And you better have something to kind of, you know, 
you know, head down, shield up, let's roll. If you're going to roll, you want something that is going to stop these darts as they're coming. Because our enemy loves to throw these darts. You ever get these just weird, bizarre thoughts that are, if you were to follow them to the logical end, are just like either sinful to think about or just dumb or just awkward right in the middle of doing something that the Lord is calling you to do? I'm surely not the only one, right? Like this does happen to other people, right? Um, I'm just going to, you guys are so emotional tonight. Um, but the enemy loves to just throw these thoughts out and, and just kind of see, you know, what, what sticks every once in a while. Just let's just throw something wild out and see if it catches them on fire. If you have faith, it's like, well, that was kind of weird. But you know what? I'm not going to go down that road because I trust the Lord enough to know that going down that road, he told me that would ruin my life. I bet he's right. So I'm going to walk in obedience. I bet it would be a lot of fun though. Uh, so, so it's that, you know, there may not be a lot of confidence. It may be like, well, well, he said it would ruin my life, and he's never lied or never been wrong, and it sure looks like fun, but, 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 I guess he knows what he's talking about, so I'll obey it. That's faith. If you walk in obedience, you're walking in faith, and that will enable you to resist the arrows of the enemy. And take the helmet of salvation. What's going to protect your head? Salvation. Right? What protects your brain? Knowing that you're saved. And just for what it's worth, yeah, I think I can say this. I heard a pastor say one time, the problem today is we have too many Christian streakers going around who want to put on the helmet of salvation and leave off everything else. And... You know, salvation is a wonderful thing, but Paul did say put on the whole armor of God. So know that you're saved. Lock into that. Anchor onto it, but put on the whole armor of God. Because just being saved, if you're just being saved and you're running around and you don't have truth or Christ righteousness or faith to back that up, you're just going to be in an awkward situation all the time. So put on the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This is the first offensive weapon we have gotten to. You notice that? The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. If you want to go on offense against the enemy, what do you need? You need the Word of God. And the Word of God is interesting. It's just like a sword. The more you use it, the better you get. The more deadly you'll be with it. The more effective you'll be. Might be the better choice of words there. Um, the more you use the Word of God, the more effective it'll be in your use of it. Right? If you want to be a great swordsman, what do you need to do? You just need to have that sword on you all the time, right? Great fighters, shadow box. They're always punching something, even if it's just the air. If you want to be, uh, if you want to be in a position to use the word of God effectively, you need to be in a position where you're using the word of God constantly. And if you don't, it's just kind of like, yeah, I've got a sword. You know, if you, I mean, you guys, we live in, okay, we live in Jefferson County. There are a lot of people who have a handgun. But if a situation goes down, they are not equipped to do anything effective with that handgun, right? We all, and you all know who they are, right? Uh, there are people who just think that, boy, I bought a handgun, therefore I'm safe. And they are not safe. And because if you don't practice with it and train with it and understand how to read a situation and assess the threats and the risks and all those other things... You are putting not just yourself, but a lot of other people in danger. And if you are trying to use the word of God like that, like I got a Bible at home. Oh yeah, no, I'm a Christian. I know what to do. Oh yeah, I heard a sermon on that once. You're not going to be super effective. 
right? The Word of God needs to be used and handled to, be, to have that kind of power in our life. It never wants to want. I mean, it's still the Word of God, right? A sword, just like a firearm, it's, it's still deadly, right? You can still chop somebody off with it, and the truth can still go, and the bullets can still fire. But tell you what, if it's handled by somebody who knows what they're doing, somebody who's used it well and used it often, there's a lot more accuracy, and there tends to be a lot less carnage. In verse 18, and this is interesting, so now we're, we're suited up, we've got all our armor on, right? We're gonna, we're, we've got the whole thing, we're walking worthy of the calling, okay, we're ready for war. So what do we do? Verse 18, praying, always, with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end, with all perseverance and supplication for the saints. Wouldn't you kind of think he'd come up with something more exciting than that? Like, we got, you know, we got the weapons, we got the defensive things, we're ready to go to war, so what are we going to do? We're going to pray, baby. Mm, yeah. And this is the challenge for us as Christians, is we don't think of prayer as being powerful. You know, if we took it on a pop quiz, right, is prayer powerful, yes or no? Yes, we'd all check it the right way. But by our lives and by our actions, do we demonstrate that? Are we suiting up for war and then going to war in prayer? Or suiting up for war and then saying, okay, thanks, Lord. You're obviously incapable of handling it from here on out. I'll take the situation. Which one are we doing? By our lives and by our actions. Paul says, hey, when you suit up, when you're walking worthy of that calling, when you're putting on the full armor of God and you want to do something effective with it, start by praying. Start by praying. So, we'll back up. We'll read verse 18 again. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end, with all perseverance and supplication for the saints, and for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. I always love that. Paul tells the church, hey, stand, put on the whole armor of God, pray, and by the way, would you pray that I'm not scared when I'm sharing the gospel? I just always find that incredibly encouraging, that Paul the apostle asked people to pray you would have boldness in sharing the gospel. If you want to be more effective at sharing the gospel, pray for boldness. Or ask other people to pray for you to have boldness. Verse 21, But that you also may know my affairs and how I am doing, Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make all things known to you, whom I have sent to you for this very purpose, that you may know our affairs and that he may comfort your hearts. Peace to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. So Paul wraps up the book, all right? He says, peace and grace be to you guys. He starts off almost all his books, grace and peace, ends them all, peace and grace, right? May you know the peace of God through the grace of God. And so we wrap up the book of Ephesians, right? Those first few chapters of what God has done and then our response to it. But whenever you read the book of Ephesians, go in your mind, or in this case, go in your Bibles, to Revelation chapter 2. Because this isn't the last reference that we have to the church at Ephesus. Later, decades later, the apostle John is going to be on the island of Patmos. He's receiving the book of Revelation from the Lord, and the Lord gives him a message to write to the church at Ephesus. Now, Paul taught the church of Ephesus for three years, and John would eventually move there with Mary and teach there for decades. And so, I believe it was decades. I could be wrong on that, but I'm pretty positive. And so, years after having some of the best Bible teachers in all of history, this is the letter that the church gets. 
the angel of the church, to the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars, and you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deed of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Jesus Christ warns the church at Ephesus. He says, I know your works. You're doing all kinds of awesome things, but you have left your first love. And if you don't repent of that, I will remove you from being a church. And historically, that's what happened. The church at Ephesus quit being a church after a while. It faded. It just died out. But what happened was they were doing all these works. The church at Ephesus, man, they never lost sight of chapters 4, 5, and 6. They hung on to those, right? They understood about walking in wisdom and walking in light and, and walking in love. And they, were, you know, they knew truth and they knew doctrine and they knew gospel. And they knew how to have a godly marriage. They knew how to put on the whole armor of God. But they forgot why they were doing it. They all of a sudden, they, they made this really subtle but really dangerous transition as a church where they started saying, I bet if we live chapters 4, 5, and 6 really hard, we'll earn chapters 1, 2, and 3. And Jesus says, you need to repent of that because that's going to destroy you as a church. So we get to Ephesians. Ephesians is one of the most incredible books in, in all of Scripture, really. But there's always, in Revelation, there's a little bit of that warning. Hey, read the book, apply the book, and then don't forget about it as time goes on. You've always got to come back around to the point of the book, which is here is what God has done. Here is who God is. Here is how God has already chosen to bless you. So as a response to that, here's how you can walk in a worthy manner. And if you ever lose sight of that, you're setting yourself up for a lifetime of frustration. <clears throat> but if you can understand that, there is a thrill in walking in grace. And that's what we get to experience. So there we go. Next week, we're going to be in Philippians chapters 1 and 2. I'd encourage you to read it ahead of time. Read it a couple times. Uh, they're short chapters. You can get through them. All right. So Lord, we thank you for your word. And we pray that you would... I preach it to our hearts, God, that it would go deep and bear fruit, that we would be people who recognize our God and our King and recognize who you are and what you've done. We want to draw close to your presence. We want to walk worthy of the calling with which we've already been called and respond to the love with which we've already been loved. So God, I pray that you do that. We thank you just for the, the gospel that we get to be a part of. Lord, I pray that you would fill us up. We want to be joyful in your presence. So have your way with us. Go before us. And it is in the name of Jesus Christ, our King, that we pray. Amen.